Hi, welcome to Fantastic Forecast, episode 658. I'm Dave Elliott, plant-based life form. With me, as always, is my lovely co-host, Elroy Burkdale. Say hello, Elroy. Hello there, dipshit. On every episode of the Fantastic Forecast, I'll be talking about a different issue of the Fantastic Four. Today, it's Fantastic Four, volume 6, number 23, from September 2020, War Games by Dan Slott and Paco Medina. And yes, Elroy Burkdale is back. Man, it's been a long time. What have you been up to? Well, I just got out of the hospital. Oh no, what was the matter? I don't know. The doctor lied to me and said it was one thing, but I think it was something else. You can't trust doctors, you know? Oh yeah, doctors. What a bunch of liars those people are. Politicians are the only ones you can trust. Exactly. So welcome back to the show. Have you been reading Empire? The 1988 series Empire from Eternity Comics? I've read that. No, the wrong one. Ah, uh, yes. The 1978 graphic novel Empire, art by Howard Shakin. No, not that either. Empire by Mark Wade. No, forget it. So, today on this podcast, we're going to read Empire, with a Y, number six, and the crossover with the Fantastic Four. That sounds awful. The comics? No, your podcast. So let's get started. In New York City, which they call a literal urban jungle on account of there being plants and trees and roots and stuff growing out all over the place. I see that shit. It's a mess. Give me an hour with my weed whacker and I'll clean it up. So there in New York, a bunch of Kree scroll soldiers are marching down the street, firing lasers at Kotati plant people. The local humans are freaking out. They're, they, you know, they're used to aliens attacking New York, but not aliens fighting other aliens on their streets. Even Jerry Seinfeld would be like, Okay, now it's time to leave. The people are happy to see the Fantastic Four, even though it's Spider-Man, Wolverine, and two kids. You would think they would be like, Hey, it's Spider-Man and Wolverine and two kids. While Spider-Man, not the Fantastic Four. While Spider-Man and Wolverine fight some Kotati, Valeria asked him about the missing Kree boy, Joe Veen. They haven't seen him. Franklin asked about, asked them about the Dark Harvest, and a scroll soldier says they saw them a while back in the battle zone. The temporary FF go to this building owned by a company called Alo Alchemax, which has been looted by the Dark Harvest and the Kotati. Spider-Man says that Peter Parker used to own this building, this company, and he owned the Baxter building too. You know, it's good to see that after getting rid of Mary Jane as his wife, Marvel made the character more relatable. Maybe he's just lying. Lots of people lie about being billionaires and owning lots of shit. Well, that's this episode's segment we called Elroy unintentionally saying something very ironic. Valeria notices that they uh, stole a Neutronic Wave Front Inducer and tries to figure out why they stole it. And she figures it out before she even finishes her sentence. Next, we see the Dark Harvest using that stolen device to put together an Omni-Wave projector. So what they're going to do is, they're going to take this machine and use uh, the memories inside the Kree boy's head and all the terrible things done during the thousand years of war between the Kree and the Scrolls. I don't know why this information is in the boy's head. I don't know. But they're going to use that information in his head into the, they're going to put it into the Omni-Wave projector and broadcast this information into the heads of all the Kree warriors and watch them turn against their scroll allies. 
I'd like to get me one of them Omni-Wave projectors and broadcast all my sexy time adventures into the heads of my ex-wives. The leader of the Dark Harvest contacts the leader of the Kotati, a guy named Kwa, and tells him that the test is about to begin. They have the Kree boy in this big crystal, and they start broadcasting these memories into the minds of all the Kree soldiers. And we see some of the memories, the scrolls subjugating the Kree, making them fight games against the Kotati, the Kree slaughtering the Kotati and turning to attack the scrolls. We see, in the present, some Kree soldier getting agitated with his scroll ally. Back at 4 Yancey Street, headquarters of the Fantastic Four, this young scroll girl wakes up in a hospital bed and screams out for her scroll boyfriend. And that blind chick, Alicia, is there and she's like, What's going on? I can't see your monitor. Somebody says, Easy, Alicia. She's she's gonna be alright. And we turn the page and see that it's 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 moon night. No, not really. It's sky. That alien broad that Johnny has been a banging. She tells Alicia that the scroll girl's fine. And then we see that Sky is the scroll girl and she flies out the window. And in the medical bed, the real Sky has been knocked out. I just hope that Alicia don't reach over and be like, Hey, scroll girl, why you got wings now? Up on the roof, Wolverine is trying to cheer up Franklin, who feels responsible for this terrible turn of events. He's trying to cheer him up by talking about how he's an Omega-level mutant. Hey, that kind of talk will cheer up any young boy. Next, Franklin gets a call from Alicia telling everyone that the scroll girl, Nakala, got away. You know, that didn't take long for Alicia to figure it out. But then again, she is always touching everyone. Wolverine finds a puddle of the scroll girl's blood on the roof, and he says he can track her by smell. Damn! I'd like to go hunting with Wolverine sometime. He could be my dog any day. Back with Dark Harvest, the test was a success. So they're ready to transmit the Kree memories all over the universe. One of the Dark Harvest guys says that they should wait and get the scroll girl too. The leader of the Dark Harvest figures out something really quickly. He orders his henchman, Bladed Leaf, to punch that member of the Dark Harvest who falls to the ground, revealing himself, herself, to be that little scroll girl. Now they're going to take her up on her suggestion and put her into the Omniwave projector and broadcast her memories to all the scrolls around the universe. So in one page, she just made things a lot worse. So they take that scroll girl, put her green ass into some big crystal too, and she confesses to the Kree boy, my entire existence has been about destroying you. Without you, I don't know who I am. I didn't know this book was going to be a love story. Oh, I'm about to cry. So the leader of the Dark Harvest says that this is their moment of triumph and nothing can stop us. Just then, the replacement Fantastic Four arrive to stop them. They start fighting with the Dark Harvest, but the leader turns on the Omniwave projector. He's like, let the Kree scroll war bloom anew. Spider-Man calls it a giant hate beam going right into the minds of two very extreme groups and adds that it's like the internet, but worse. The internet? What's wrong with the internet? There's a lot of useful information on the internet about the Jewish control- Okay, Elroy, that's enough. So we see all over the place, New York, Wakanda, the Kree Scroll flagship. The Kree and the Scroll warriors are turning to fight each other. Even though the Kree Scroll leader, the Hulkling, is telling everyone to stop. 
back with the Dark Harvest, Wolverine claws out, is telling the leader to stop the Omniwave projector. But he's not going to. With the two kids broadcasting their memories to the entire universe of Kree and Scrolls, Valeria gets an idea. And boy, I saw this coming. She goes over to the kids in the crystal containers. She tells them to remember the time they spent together and all the battles they were forced to fight and how they were the one constant thing in each other's lives and yet they were able to break free from that cycle and learn to work together to use the peace that they created together the power of love to end the Kree scroll war and suddenly we see all the scroll and the Kree warriors they stop fighting they're helping each other up putting aside years of animosity starting to work together it's awful I hope something like this doesn't happen in America. So yes, the entire plot of Dark Harvest has been foiled by the power of love. My favorite kind of stories. The leader Kwa is pissed off. He calls up the Dark Harvest and he's like, You were supposed to tear the enemy apart. Yet, they are bonding like never before. And then the Dark Harvest gets attacked by the Kotati and killed, I guess. So the replacement Fantastic Four take the two kids out of their crystal containers and Spider-Man says he's proud of all the kids. Valeria asks what they're going to do now. The Kree boy says they want to go to a place mentioned earlier. And the girl says, yes, take us to the land of Disney. Oh, man. You know, that might be funny if this book wasn't published by Disney. And now it just comes across as crass commercialization. Good timing, by the way. I'm sure in September of 2020, everyone's going to rush off to Disneyland. And so that is the end of the issue. Uh, what'd you think about it, Elroy? I don't understand it. What the hell is going on? If you think this is crazy, we're going to read Empire 6 next. So you can probably guess how I felt about this issue. Franklin and Valeria save the day. Spider-Man and Wolverine wearing what may be their ugliest costumes ever. The actual Fantastic Four are nowhere to be seen in a book called the Fantastic Four. I still don't understand the motivation of the Dark Harvest. Why did they want to help the Kotati people? How did a group of Vietnamese come to serve a race of alien plant people? I do like the art okay. Paco Medina is my favorite of the Volume 6 Fantastic Four artist. But these three issues are just like killing time while the Fantastic Four are off in the real Empire story. So I give this a, a one and a half out of four stars. I did not care for this issue at all. So that brings us to... Hi, welcome to Fantastic Forecast episode 658, part 2. I'm Elroy Bergdale, and the Fantastic Four are my favorite heroes. Unlike other superheroes, they don't wear masks. Today is Empire number 6 by Al Ewing, Dan Slott, and Valerio Shidey. The issue starts at Avengers Ma Mountain. Reed, Richards, and Tony Stark are following what, what's going on remotely. It's like they're socially distancing superheroes. Reed tells Tony that the Kotati have planted the Death Blossom on the Vibranium Mound in Wakanda, and within, within a matter of minutes, the leader of the Kotati, Kwa, will have godlike powers. Tony points out that might not happen because the sun might blow up first. Oh, that Tony Stark always looking on the bright side. So the Pyre device has been set off by the Kree-Scroll Empire, which will blow up the sun and destroy our solar system. 
but save the rest of the universe from the crazy plant people with the Kotati. Reed says they only have eight minutes before the sun blows up. You know, this is actually a pretty good setup. The clock is ticking on two cataclysmic events at the same time. I have a question. Why is Reed wearing a blue Iron Man suit with a Fantastic Four symbol on it? And Tony is wearing a t-shirt? Uh, good question, I don't know. Why in the middle of two giant possible apocalyptic scenarios, Tony found the time to make Reed an Iron Man suit and paint it blue? Reed points out that Tony doesn't seem to be acting like himself lately. Unsure of himself, dwelling on his mistakes. Hmm, maybe he switched to decaf. Tony goes on about how working in a cave, dealing, dealing with scraps is how he rolls. Ugh, whatever. So Tony has a plan which he calls putting the sun in a suit. Next, we see Spider-Man, Wolverine, and the kids in New York battling the Dark Harvest. This is the same shit we've already seen. They set off that Omni-Wave projector, and them Kree and Scroll dudes start fighting with each other, and during all this, some guy named Captain Glory, which is also the name of my boat, which unfortunately recently sank during a, uh, we'll call it a boat parade, so this Captain Glory lets it slip that their leader, the Hulkling, is an imposter. Next, we see the real Hulkling is wearing this face mask that inhibits his powers. I say something like that whenever I shop at Walmart. I can't wear a face mask. It inhibits my powers. So the real Hulkling suggests that between the Human Torch's ability to control flames and Captain Marvel's ability to absorb energy, they could tame an exploding sun. Johnny is like, well, yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe not. That's a little... They're not that powerful. He don't seem too crazy about the idea. And can you blame him? By the way, how do you get to the sun? They look to Wiccan, who has teleportation powers. Wiccan says it'll be tough to take four people, but Hulkling tells his boyfriend he's not going anywhere. It will just be the three of them. Wait, what? Tells his boyfriend? So Wiccan teleports Captain Marvel and Human Torch to the sun, and he gives them air and protects them from the heat. Johnny's nervous and says he wishes he had a, his family there. Captain Marvel, Carol, tells Johnny that as a former Avenger, he is family. Wait, he was an Avenger? Who knew? Wiccan says, Avengers assemble, which seems wildly inappropriate since the three of them are already assembled. You know, by the sun. Back near Lake Victoria, outside of Wakanda, Ben Graham, The Thing, and the Invisible Woman, Sue Richards, is oh, one of my favorites. For some reason, this artist is drawing her with a mole on her upper lip. She's never had a mole on her upper lip before. I think she should get that checked. They're fighting the Kotati plant people alongside Mantis, that green chick with the antenna who was in the last Guardians of the Galaxy movie. Mantis is cute here. She's got this little Asian thing going on. Elroy Likey. Sue suggests they combine their powers. Yes, Mantis should use whatever stupid power she has, and while she does that, Sue should use her powers to make Mantis's clothes disappear. What Sue suggests is that Mantis use her telepathic powers to block Sue's pain and fatigue, while she uses her powers to fight the Kotati. Back in New York, we see that bit with Valeria telling the kids to think about how they've put aside their differences and transmit their power of love to the entire Kree and Skrull races. And in Africa, Sue uses her powers to stop this plant creature that used to be the She-Hulk 
from tearing Ben apart. And for some reason, when the Kree and the Skrull kids start transmitting good vibes to the Kree and Skrull people, She-Hulk returns to normal. Well, not quite normal, but to the savage version of herself that we saw earlier in the series, when she was calling herself the Hulk. Let me guess. PC Marvel has gone woke and it's politically incorrect to call her the She-Hulk. So she's just the Hulk now. Even though there's another guy called the Hulk. Well, there are multiple Spider-Men running around. Multiple Thors. Multiple Captain Americas. Etc. Every character is now Green Lantern and has their own core. What next? They gonna start calling Sue Richards the invisible person? On the bridge of the flagship, all the Kree and the Scroll put aside their differences. Captain Glory reveals that he was planning to betray the Scrolls when all this is done, and everyone is like, okay, that's interesting. They look to the Hulkling for guidance as their leader again. He sends some people out to help Wiccan, Captain Marvel, and Johnny with, you know, controlling the sun. Down in Wakanda, the Black Panther isn't dead after all. He was stabbed, but his body armor stitched his wound back together. See? That sure beats going to the doctor where they rip you off. When I cut myself badly, I just sew myself back together with a sewing needle and fishing wire. They're telling Qua he needs to grow that death blossom faster when Black Panther comes back and starts sword fighting with the swordsman. And Qua is going to use his powers to attack the Black Panther. But he's stopped by the arrival of what he thinks is Iron Man, but it's not. It's Mr. Fantastic in his blue Iron Man armor. Yet somehow... Reed is still able to use his stretching powers, like, how is the metal of the suit also stretching? It really is one of the dumbest panels I've ever seen. He has some kind of sonic weapon, sound that is being emitted that nullifies Qua's powers. Qua takes out these two big swords, and he's like, hey, I'm gonna carve that suit off you, bro, and there ain't no sound you can make that'll stop me. Mr. Reed replies that he has a sound, it's the phrase, Avengers Assemble. And then we see this Qua fellow being attacked by half the characters in the Marvel Universe. Thor, Vision, Ben, Sue, Mantis, Scarlet Witch, Wasp, Captain America, chilling out on a, on a helicopter for some reason, She-Hulk, I mean, Hulk, Wonder Man, friggin' Wonder Man is here, Doctor Strange, and is that brother Voodoo in the background? Moon Knight is nowhere to be seen. The members of the Kree Skrull Alliance arrive to help and they start trying to absorb the heat of the sun or something, which seems rather ridiculous for a group of six people. Tony Stark meanwhile teleports the device into the sun that keeps it from blowing up. The six idiots over by the sun think they've solved the problem. They did not. On the flagship, the person posing as the fake Hulkling reveals her true, si her true identity to the real Hulkling and it's his grandmother and she is not happy that the sun was not blown up. She really wanted to see the earth destroyed. Not to stop the Kotati, but just to be a bitch, and to rob her grandson of his home so he becomes devoted to the Scroll Empire. If she wanted to win over her son, she could have just got him like a Nintendo Switch or something. So you know what that green grandma does next? She smacks the shit out of her grandkid and knocks that power inhibiting mask off his face. Which is a big mistake, cause he takes that thing, turns around, and puts it on her face. Oh, serves her right. Now she can't use her powers. Back in Africa, all these heroes are going after Kwa. But he says it's too late. The Death Blossom has given them control over all vegetation. 
Ooh, big deal. He can control plants and trees. I ain't afraid of no trees. Except for those trees in Wizard of Oz. They used to freak me out. Thor's like, let thy power be revoked. And he makes this lightning strike. And he seems to kill these plant people all over the world. Which, that seems way too powerful for Thor. Next we see Black Panther still sword fighting with swordsmen. Now, when the, when the word sword is in your name, you shouldn't have this much trouble sword fighting with some dude dressed up like a cat. Quas sees this and he runs over to help. And his dad, Swordsman, pulls a very dick move. He grabs Qua and threatens to stab his son's neck and kill him if the Black Panther doesn't let Swordsman go. Black Panther gives a little speech about how Swordsman was once a human, once an Avenger, but he's been eaten alive and taken over by plants. And he walks over and stabs Swordsman in the chest. And he stabs the Death Blossom too and destroys it. That seemed very easy. Just like that, the attack on Earth by the alien plant people is over. You see, this attack by aliens would not have happened if they did one thing. What's that? Built. A. Wall. Around the planet Earth? Sure, why not? So they have Qua in handcuffs and the Kotati crisis is over. Mantis comes over to her son and says that he must see the error of, of his ways now, but Qua does not agree with this. He still thinks Earth is still corrupt and he was right to try to take it over with his Kotati plant people. He says, I will face whatever the animals call justice in the knowledge that I was just. Who's the animals? We are, Elroy. We are the animals. Well, that's just racist against humans, ain't it? Mantis is surprised that her son is being so belligerent. He says, I am what you made me, mother. A messiah. Well, that's just blasphemous, isn't it? We know there's only one messiah. Who? Jesus? No, I'm talking about Donald Trump. Shut Tr your mouth. We see around the world, Kree and Skrulls are working peacefully together as the Kotati people give up and surrender to them. Next, we see uh, Reed and Sue talking about how this is a new beginning for the galaxy, a seismic shift in galactic politics. And then he adds, perhaps Qua is the future. What a weird thing to say. Why would he say that Qua, a genocidal lunatic, could be the future? He went from being very optimistic to very pessimistic within one sentence. Black Panther looks at his magic sword and says that he has faith in those who now hold the future in their hands. And the magic sword disappears. And then the sword appears in the hands of the Hulkling as Black Panther says, Long live the king. And he's standing there, Hulkling is standing there with the sword raised with Wiccan at his side. Johnny and Captain Marvel, Captain Glory, the Super Scroll, and that is the end of the issue. So, what did you think about it, Elroy? Well, it was a comic, and you can read it. You know, I like the Hulkling and Wiccanist characters. As I mentioned last issue, I'm baffled as to why they married them off at a very young age, and now they've, make Hulk they've made Hulkling the king of an intergalactic empire. This feels like an ending for the two characters. I mean, what can, Mar what can Marvel possibly do with these two characters now? It feels like they made decisions for these two characters without thinking about the long-term possibilities. I liked them better when they were just like two average teenagers living in New York. Now they're the royal couple of an intergalactic empire. That's kind of bullshit. What do you think, Elroy? I think Hulkland is the top and Wiccan is Moving the... on. I think the Kotati are also very boring. That guy Qua is boring. The child of Mantis and Swordsman? Legit. 
the two most boring, useless Avengers of all time. I never like crossovers anyway. And this, like most of them, feel like a crossover for the sake of having a crossover. You know what this series feels like? We know that Wiccan and Hulkling are going to show up in the Marvel Cinematic Universe within the next few years, probably. This series feels like, hey, let's do something with those two characters that might be used in a movie. So we'll make lots of money one day. Even though, a lot of Marvel comics feel like that to me. So what are we going to do now? Is the show over? Oh shit, Elroy, you have no idea. Since you were on here last, I added a segment called the Fantastic Wheel of Doom where I spin a wheel of ideas, mostly comics, but some other stuff as well, to talk about, and whatever it lands on, we have to talk about that in the next episode. Last week, I spun the wheel and landed on top 10 most attractive, best-looking Fantastic Four villains of all time. Ooh, now you're talking. I have some really good ideas about some of the female villains I'd like to bang. Sorry, I've already prepared the list. But I would appreciate it if you helped out and read the even-numbered entries on the list. Okay, start with number 10. Number 10. The Griever at the End of All Things. So this is a newer villain from this here, Volume 6, Issue 2, in 2018. She's the self-described embodiment of entropy. But there's one body part that won't be cooling down and getting weaker when you look at this sexy creature from an alien dimension. She's got long, sinewy arms and legs like a supermodel, but a helmet covers half her face, allowing you access to her luscious black lips that taunt you seductively from her pale blue face. And the helmet covers her eyes so you never quite know what she's thinking. Very mysterious. A revealing outfit shows the undercarriage of her ample bosoms, revealing no scars down there. Those puppies are all natural. This is why the Griever at the end of all things is number 10 on our list of the top 10 sexiest FF supervillains. Number 9 is Thundra. First appearance, Fantastic Four, 129 from 1972. She's kind of a villain, kind of a friend, like several others on this list, an anti-hero. She's a red-headed Femazon from the future society where men have been subjugated by women. Kind of the original Feminazi, Elroy. Powerful, strong, and super sexy, this battle-hardened warrior woman hails from the megalopolis of Greater Malago, the merged sprawl of Milwaukee and Chicago. Her look combines practical Midwestern values and straight-up dominatrix attitude of the United Sisterhood Republic. No list of sexy supervillains would be complete without this classic depiction of 1970s girl power. Elroy? Ah, well this is number eight. Uh, do I have to read this? Yeah. Number eight, Machismo. The 1970s counterpart to Thundra, originally from Fantastic Four 151 in 1974. This fine specimen of 1970s manhood comes from a much more optimistic and hopeful future, I would say, where men have subjugated the women. Machismo combines superhuman strength with durability and the ability to release explosive energy with his punch. Which sounds pretty dirty to me. He may have long hair like a girl, but this hairy-chested specimen of manhood is an icon of Bronze Age sexiness. When your only shirt is a single chain across your chest, you know he means business. And the fact that he wants to kill all the women don't mean he's gay. He just don't know where babies come from. That's machismo for ya. 
Frankly, I think it would be cool if you read the rest of these, Elroy. But I won't do that to you. Number seven, as if the order of these really have any meaning. Number seven from Fantastic Four 30 in 1964 is the mysterious Diablo. Sure, Stan Lee once called Diablo one of his least favorite characters, but that doesn't make him any less sexy. This Spanish stud is a master of alchemy, the ancient art of changing one substance to another, such as taking a soft and mushy element and turning it into a hard and rigid element. And believe you me, when you get a look at this Latin lust monster in his pink and green jumpsuit and his Fu Manchu mustache, he'll be using his mastery of alchemy on you. Number six, Galactus. Good lord, Galactus really? From Fantastic Four 48 in 1966. Sure, you may know Galactus as a world-eaten cosmic monster that's responsible for the deaths of trillions of people, and sure, his true form cannot be perceived by most beings, but this classic Fantastic Four villain is a cosmic force of nature and a cosmic force of pure sex appeal. This being has an appetite that no one person can satisfy, and he's rocking some six-pack abs, and he's a strong, silent type that doesn't have to say a word, and you know what he's thinking. I'm going to eat that booty up. And everything else for that matter. And have you seen him in shorts? He's the winner of the Intergalactic Cosmic Entities Best Legs competition for 50 years running. Sorry, living tribunal. Maybe next year. Number five, Pacepot Pete, a.k.a. The Trapster. First appearance as Pacepot Pete in Strange Tales starring the Human Torch, issue 104 from 1963, and as the Trapster in Fantastic Four 38 from 1965. I know what you're thinking. The Trapster? Really? He's really on here by default, because when you look at the Fantastic Four's rogues gallery, there's some pretty ugly people there. That's why he's on this list, because he's the most normal looking of all the Fantastic Four villains. Actually, Googling, Googling his name, this guy's been drawn as though he's handsome, sometimes drawn like he's an ugly, grizzled, grizzled creep. He's so forgettable, no artist remembers what he looks like. But the Trapster doesn't have superpowers, and as a member of the Frightful Four, he faces off against the Fantastic Four using a variety of technological devices. His costume is equipped with canisters containing copious amounts of paste and lubricant, so you know, this is one supervillain that's always ready for action. You find yourself in a situation with Pete, things are going to get sticky. Oh, did I mention? Pete, he's a shooter. When Pete's in action, there'll be a stream after stream of sticky white cream shooting everywhere. And if you like bondage, Pete is well equipped to fasten your arms and legs to the bed or table or children's swing set, whatever you're into. So if you give him a chance, Pete will trap your heart. Number four, I have no idea who this is. For Vertigo, first appearance, Fantastic Four, 185 from 1977. Vertigo, a member of the Salem Seven. While this foxy mag magical priestess always means business, her tight white priestess robe shows off her fun side, if you know what I mean. So, you know when business is over, there is ample pleasure to be found. If you're lonely and looking for company, this sexy siren of New Salem will definitely work her magic on you. One look at her and you'll be stricken with extreme and debilitating nausea. Okay, that's because her vertigo powers. But don't hold that against her. She don't need her powers to rock your world. And now number three. And after that very obscure number four, these are probably the three that everyone expects to be on the top three. 
And number three, it's Doctor Doom. First appearance, Fantastic Four, number five, 1962. Now, a lot of this depends on which version of Doctor Doom you're talking about. The one from Secret Wars 3 miniseries from like five years ago with a missing nose. Eh, not so much. He probably shouldn't be on this list. The first Doctor Doom I ever saw was in an issue of the original Secret Wars miniseries from the 1980s, where he had the Beyonder's powers and he fixed his face, and he looked very handsome there. I think the original Lee Kirby concept of the character was that he was still supposed to be a very handsome, good-looking man, only with a very small scar from the explosion he had in school. It was only later, I think it was John Byrne, that established that he put on a hot mask on his face and burned himself up. So, before the explosion, and before putting on that hot mask, Dr. Victor Von Doom was a sexy guy, and with the mask on, still a sexy guy. This is just the guy you want to meet off Tinder during a pandemic. He's not one of those crazy fascists crying about, Oh, I can't wear a mask. I've got a medical condition. Nope. He's got his mask on. He's ready to play. Dr. Doom made the maybe the most versatile person on this list. He's the master of technology, of magic. He's at home in a high-technology uh, doomsday satellite or chilling with the monks in a cold Himalayan monastery. Who wouldn't want to take Dr. Home, Dr. Doom home to meet your parents? The conversations would be fascinating, and if you don't like your parents, he'd probably kill them for you. He's just that kind of guy who would do anything for a friend. I'm glad we've only got two more of these things because I'm really running out of ideas. Number two. Oh man, it's Namer the Submariner. First appearance, Marvel Comics number one from 1939. First modern appearance, Fantastic Four Volume 4, 1962. The Submariner. Half-human half-Atlantean, 100%. Do I have to read this? Read it. So he's a half-human, half-Atlantean, 100% stud. This anti-hero looks good in a suit in a boardroom, but even better in his tight little green speedo flying around with his sexy little ankle wings flapping around. Whether he's fighting Nazis alongside Captain America or leading an attack on New York and fighting the Fantastic Four. The Submariner is a muscle-bound feast for my eyes. Not really my eyes, I'm just reading this. As an Atlantean, he always has to stay wet to keep up his strength. But he'll also keep you wet, if you know what I mean. I actually don't know what that means. The Submariner, invite him over for a booty call with Doctor Doom and you have a supervillain team-up you'll never forget. Okay, this sound clip is going to haunt me for the rest of my life, ain't it? You bet. And that brings us to number one. The sexiest supervillain in Fantastic Four history. First appearance in Fantastic Four 36 from March 1965. The former teammate of the Trapster in the Frightful Four, but later an ally of the Fantastic Four as the Queen of the Inhumans. Of course, I'm talking about number one, Medusa. Sharing a name with a character from Greek mythology... This Medusa is more of a goddess than a monster. Those aren't snakes in her hair. It's long flowing red hair that she can control with her thoughts. Her tight purple outfit shows off her amazingly inhuman body, one that had Johnny Storm instantly obsessed. She's the kind of woman that men would grovel at her feet. She's the kind of woman that's all about action. No need to engage in small talk with this magnificent goddess. She doesn't need to be showered with compliments. She's confident. She knows she's the hottest former villain the Fantastic Four have ever had, and that is number one, Medusa. So that's the list. 
Hopefully there's a little something for everyone on that list. If I left anyone off, please let me know. I enjoy making these kinds of lists. So if you have any more list ideas, let me know. I can't remember exactly all I've done so far. Hottest FF villains. I think I did best FF covers. I think I did a ranking of all the creative teams. Have I done that? I'm not sure. I need to add another list to the wheel. But I don't haven't thought of one yet. So on this episode, the list is down to 11 items. Here's what we have now on the Fantastic Wheel of Doom. Number one, issues one and two of Fantastic Four World's Greatest Comic Magazine, which was a 12-issue miniseries from 2001 and 2002. Number two, Fantastic Four Secret Invasion, issues one, two, and three, a miniseries that ties into Secret Invasion. Number three... Issues 3 and 4 of Supervillain Team-Up from the 1970s. Number 4, Challengers of the Fantastic, a Marvel DC amalgam book from 1997 that combines the Challengers of the Unknown with the Fantastic Four. Number 5, from 1999, another Marvel and DC special, the Fantastic Four and Superman graphic novel. Number 6, Fantastic Four X-Men issues 1 and 2, miniseries from 1987. Number seven, something I call issue 44, where I'll be doing a random 44th issue of any comic book in my collection. Number eight, episode one of the Fantastic Four radio show from the early 1970s featuring the voices of Stan Lee and Bill Murray. Number nine, Marvel 2-in-1, a random issue. Number ten, Fantastic Four, I'll be picking a random issue. I'll be redoing a comic I've already done before. Number 11, for this, it's the last Fantastic Four story from 2007 by Stan Lee and John Romita Jr. If I land on this, it will be the last Fantastic Four story I ever do on this podcast, meaning that this podcast will come to an end, which is very high stakes here on the Fantastic Wheel of Doom. So what do you think, Elroy? What do you want to see come up on the wheel? Well, you know what I'm rooting for. Last Fantastic Four story, of course. So anyway, now it's time. Here's the spin of the Fantastic Wheel of Doom. All right, here we go. Spinning the wheel. Wheel spinning. Slowing down. FFX Men, Secret Invasion, Supervillain Team Up. That's it. It's Supervillain Team Up again. Well, the wheel is nothing if not consistent. Once we start something, the wheel wants to finish. So you excited, Elroy? Do I have to be on the next episode? No. Well, great. I'm excited. So that's it for this episode. Coming up next time, it's Fantastic Four 24, along with, with, along with Empire Fallout Fantastic Four number one and Supervillain Team Up 3 and 4. How the hell did this episode end up at 40 minutes with only two issues to cover? You like to be cruel to your listeners. Yeah, that must be it. If you have any questions about Salem 7, about this podcast, or if you need relationship advice, you can email me at podcastff at gmail.com. You can download episodes at Apple Podcasts or find them all at www.podcastff.podbean.com. So long, kids. This podcast is over. Why you always in the mood? Cool, baby, I ain't playing by your rules. Everything look better with it.